I don't know if we jinxed it or whatnot, but anyhow, now we're getting another new keyboard. But uh, anyhow, she was checking that out, and um, when, while she was up here, she had a sinus infection, and she got dizzy and fell and had a, an accident here at the church, and so we had to uh, ambulance, took her to the hospital, and so she's been uh, recovering from that and is doing very well. All of her tests that were run, everything looks really good, really positive, and so we thank the Lord for that. And I know she's checking in with us today through the online, so thank you for your prayers on behalf of her, for the food that you brought by, the phone calls, the text messages, the cards, all that sort of thing. So we do appreciate that and know that she's doing well. Um, we are in a series uh, called What is a Biblical Worldview? And we defined a worldview last week as this, the framework through which we understand ultimate reality. So when I walk out of my house on Monday morning, how do I understand the world in which I live? And so that's what a biblical worldview is. It helps us understand the world in which we live. And a biblical worldview is made up of presuppositions. A presupposition is a rock-bottom foundational belief that is not testable in a science lab. It's not something that we can observe in nature. It's not something that we have empirical evidence for, but it's a belief that we have that we walk into the world with. And when you string all those presuppositions together, presuppositions together, they form what we would think of as a biblical worldview. Our, our world in which we live, increasingly secular, has a very different idea of why we're here, what our purpose is, the values and values of life and all those sorts of things. And so we, I just felt like this series was a, an opportunity for us to reaffirm what does the Bible teach, what are the values of Scripture, and for us to just revisit that. Um, last week, we identified the first of those presuppositions that we are um, made by our Creator, that we have God as our Creator. Not just that there is a God, but that the God of the universe created us, that we are His beings, and that He shaped and fashioned us with purpose and a plan for our lives. And then second of all, this week we're going to take a look at presupposition number two, which is that we live in a fallen world. Our text for today comes from Genesis chapter 3. If you have your Bibles, you can flip over there with me. Let's stand and read together from God's Word, Genesis chapter 3. We'll begin reading at verse 14. This is the story of the curses after sin has happened. So Adam and Eve have sinned in the garden, and now God's issuing out the curses. Um, let's take a look at these beginning at verse 14. It says, the Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain and childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. And to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Verse 18. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread, till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. You may be seated. Thank you all so much. Um, we are going to come back to those verses here in just a little while, uh, but before we talk about the world as fallen, I think it's important for us to take a look, first of all, is what was the world like before it fell, and then we can kind of understand and put in context the world in which we live today. So what was, the, what was the world like? What's changed about the world? What was life like before sin entered into it? And so I got three things for you to kind of help us frame up our, the concept of what the world was like in the Garden of Eden state. First of all, it had perfect um, 
Right, it was a perfect environment, a perfect physical environment. Second of all, I had perfect purpose. We had perfect purpose in life. And then third of all, we had perfect relationships between one another and the world in which we live. So those are kind of the three, uh, if you would, outline that we're going to follow here today. So let's start with the number one. The Garden of Eden was a perfect environment. Flip over, back over in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 1 and verse 6. or You can follow along here on the screen. Genesis chapter 1 and verse 6. Um, is talking about the second day of creation. So on the second day of creation, here's what God did, verse 6. It says, And God said, Let there be an expanse, that is, let there be sky, um, and that is breathable atmosphere, in the midst of or in between the waters. And then he says in verse 7, here he goes, he does it, And God made the sky, or the expanse, and separated the waters that were under the expanse from the waters that were above the expanse. So the, in the estimation of the Bible, the Bible's teaching here is that God put water over the face of the earth, and then he put atmosphere in place, and then he put water above that, like a water vapor barrier. Some people may say it was water crystals uh, that were, were frozen, kind of like the, the, the rings of Saturn or something like that, that encircled the earth. I have a picture here for you of what some artists have rendered to give an idea or concept of what this may have looked like. You can see the earth, the globe there. Um, and it's completely covered in this water vapor barrier. Now, if this was a vapor barrier, that would make, it would make the most sense because the vapor barrier would have been translucent. And, because, and that way, the people who were inhabitants of the earth could see the stars through that translucent water vapor barrier. And we know that they could see the stars. Um, the Bible attests to this in other places in Scripture. Genesis chapter 7 and verse 11 is where the flood comes. Look at chapter 7 and verse 11. It says, On that day, all the fountains of the great deep burst forth. So there's geysers busting up water from underneath the ground. Water's flowing everywhere from underneath the ground. And they sprung open. And it says that the windows of heaven were open. That is the water that was way up in the heavens, up in the sky, uh, fell down from the sky. And that vapor barrier that surrounded the earth cut loose and it unloaded on the earth for 40 days and 40 nights, global-wide disaster of this rain. Um, have you ever been in a greenhouse before? Anybody ever been in a greenhouse? You kind of know what a greenhouse is like. You go in there, it's a very temperate climate. Some of y'all may even have one at your house. It's a very temperate climate in there. There's no hot zones and cold zones in the greenhouse. You walk inside and it feels kind of humid in there. And the air is very constant, um, very still. And so if you expand that out to the size of the earth, the earth encased in this water vapor barrier, uh, the earth would have been very much like a greenhouse. There would have been no polar ice caps. It would have had a temperate climate all the way around. There would have been no dry, hot zone at the equator in the middle. Uh, the earth as a whole would have felt much like a greenhouse if it had a moderate temperature year-round. Not only that, but when you don't have, you know, what drives weather? It's the cold zones and the hot zones on the parts of the earth. And so because you have the earth is kind of a greenhouse effect, you don't have those cold zones. And with the, no cold zones, it means that you don't have the heating and cooling of the oceans. And without the heating and cooling of the oceans, you don't get wind. And if you don't have wind, then you don't get hot, high pressure and low pressure systems. If you don't have high pressure and low pressure systems, then you don't have what? Weather. Right? There's no need for a weatherman in, in, in uh, the Garden of Eden state. And no weather means no hurricanes. It means no tornadoes. It means no thunderstorms. It means no lightning bolts. Well, there's even more. This water vapor barrier would have been a protective barrier around the earth that would have kept any harmful radiation or ultraviolet rays from penetrating to the earth's surface, which means there would have been no skin cancer, there would have been no need for copper tone, there would be no need for any kind of suntan lotion, and it's for this reason, after the flood, after the vapor barrier is gone, that we see a precipitous drop-off in the length of days and the number of years that people lived. If you look at Noah, there's a genealogy in Genesis chapter 11. I've always loved these genealogies because they prove this. 
Noah lives like seven, eight hundred years. And then within a couple of generations, you get down to Abraham, who lives like 120 years. Well, what happened? Well, the water vapor barrier is gone. It disappeared at the flood. And so you got all these harmful radiation and things that are causing decay in the earth. And so because of that, the number of years that people lived uh, dropped off dramatically. So what we have with the Garden of Eden is a perfect world where there was no death, there was no pain, no sickness, no tears, no decay, no bacteria, no germs, no viruses. There were none around. There were no PCBs, dioxin, radon. There were no heavy metal contamination in the water. I mean, Adam and Eve didn't even have to wash the fruit off before they ate it, right? They just picked it off the tree and eat it, and it was all good to go. Um, they didn't have to check for ticks every night. It was a great place. Man had absolute safety there. He had absolute serenity there. He had all the food that he could possibly want to eat. Look at Genesis chapters 2 and verse 16. It says, God said, you can eat of any tree of the, of the, that you want in that garden. But, verse 17, he said, don't eat of that one tree, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. You all know how that went. Um, you say, Gordon, time out for just a second. You don't really believe all this, do you? I mean, this is kind of a far-fetched. Uh, there's some logic to what you're saying, but at the same time, I mean, I'm looking outside the world. I'm listening to what I read in my science book. This doesn't even sound like anything anybody's ever talked about before. This is all new to me. Uh, it just sounds kind of far-fetched. You don't really believe this. Well, absolutely I do. Absolutely I do. Um, part of the reason why we have trouble believing in something like this is because, well, let me think about it this way. I wear glasses, right? And right now, all of y'all are flesh-colored blurry blobs. And, and I see, what I see, especially toward the back, I really can't see anything. But the, those of you up front, I see little, two little dark spots right here in this area. But for the most part, you're just big blurry blobs to me. But when I put on my glasses, right, I can see you. Hey, there you are, right? I can see you clearly. Well, it's the same thing with Scripture. When we look through the lens of Scripture, you know, we walk out into the world, we think the world's always been like this. But the Bible gives us a view back to the world before it was the way it is today. And this is what the Bible is describing. When we look through the lens of Scripture, we see a world more clearly of the way it was originally designed um, and the way it was intended to be. Um, so again, man had absolute safety there, absolute serenity, all that he wanted, um, and that was a perfect physical environment. Now, not only was man given a perfect physical environment, but he was given perfect purpose in life. Take a look at this Scripture with me. He was given this ultimate job description. Number one, he was given meaningful work. Genesis chapter 2 and verse 15 says, The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it. See, God gave man a task. He knew that part of our satisfaction in life, part of our happiness in life, was that we had problems to solve, that we had things that we could create, things that we could do. And so that's, again, what we're part of how we're wired to do. Waking up every morning to just self-indulge, I mean, that may sound great for a couple of days of vacation, but that's no way to live right? That's no way to live. That would get boring after a while. Well, life would lose all of its purpose. So God gave us a job. Now we can add to that back in Genesis 1 and verse 26, that God wanted man to have dominion over all of creation. And we see this happening when all the animals are reporting into man, when all the animals are showing up to Adam and he's giving each of them their name. This is all of creation in submission to man. God gives him the task of overseeing all of God's creation. Third and finally, the most important part of his job description is that he was given the task of enjoying fellowship with his creator. That is, he was supposed to build an intimate relationship toward God. He was supposed to learn who God was. He was supposed to 
talk with God. He was supposed to listen to God. He was supposed to spend time with God. Genesis chapter 3 and verse 8, we learn about how Adam and Eve are scared. They're trying to hide from God. But it says that God came down and walked in the garden. He walked amongst them. And so this was an average, this was a normal occurrence for Adam and Eve that God would come and walk in their midst and they would talk with him. Again, it was part of their highest purpose for which man was created. Higher than work, higher than their purpose of overseeing the animals was this purpose of getting to know their creator. And this is what man was to do in the garden, to have meaningful work, to rule over the animals, and to enjoy a relationship with his creator. Again, that was part of his perfect purpose that God intended for us. But in addition to God giving us a perfect physical environment, in addition to him giving us a perfect purpose for our lives, he also gave us perfect relationships, both our relationships with the world in which we live and also with one another. Let's take a first look at the world in which we live. God had, or God had designed man to have a perfect relationship with the plants, which means uh, maybe there was poison ivy in the garden. I don't know, but I, we weren't allergic to it, um, which is great. I'd love to know that. I've had some itchies going on with me here lately. Um, there were no weeds. There were no thorns. There were no pollen that drove his nose crazy. He had a perfect relationship with the plants. He also had a perfect relationship with the animals. The snakes didn't bite. The bees didn't sting. The lions didn't threaten and kill. Even the mosquitoes in the garden were compatible, right? Um, in fact, we learn in Genesis chapter 1 and verse 30 that all of the animals of the garden ate vegetables. Did you know that? Look at Genesis chapter 1 and verse 30. Look at what it says. It says, And to every beast of the earth, and to every bird of the heavens, and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, here it is, I have given every green plant for food. He just listed off the birds, the things that creep. He listed off the animals, and he said, I've given them all of this green plants for them to eat. And that is, and it was so. Friends, all the land-breathing animals, God says, were in perfect relationship with one another. That means there were no carnivorous lions. There were no man-eating crocodiles. Um, or anything of that sort. Everything existed in perfect harmony with one another. And I know you may be thinking to yourself, but Gordon, that just doesn't sound like I'm looking at these animals and they've got like canine teeth that are made for like tearing flesh apart. How is it that that's the case? Well, do you think that heaven's going to have carnivorous lions in it that are going to eat you? And man-eating crocodiles that you got to be aware of, be careful about? So why would we think that that wouldn't be in our future but yet it couldn't possibly be in the past. You follow me? So again, the rationale is there. And one more thing about relationships. Not only was man at peace with the plants, not only was at peace with the animals, but they were also at peace with one another. Man was at peace with man. Genesis chapter 2 and verse 18 reads, Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I'll make a helper suitable for him. And so God parades all these animals by. The parrot came by. He could actually have a conversation with the man. Kind of interesting. Yeah, the parrot is kind of cool. He saw this big elephant come by. Hey, the elephant's pretty neat. He saw the lion. The lion was brave. But again, none of these animals were suitable for the man. And so God said, look, I'm going to make a companion for you. And he brought Eve into Adam's uh, before him. And Adam said, I do. And Eve said, I do. And God pronounced the two of them uh, married. And then they were supposed to live happily ever after, right? Look at that last verse, verse 25. It says, and the man and the wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Here's my point. Not only was man to live in perfect relationship with the plants and in perfect relationship with the animals, but also he was to live in perfect relationship with other people. 
I mean, Adam and Eve in the garden state, there was no aggression between the two of them. There were no passive-aggressive attitudes. There was no arguing and fussing and all that sorts of things going on. No unresolved conflicts. No wars. You say, yeah, Gordon, of course there wasn't because none of them, they hadn't had any children yet. They didn't have a boss that they had to report into work. They didn't have schedules they had to keep. I mean, they're walking around with no clothes. They didn't have a care in the world, right? Well, nevertheless, they wouldn't have fought even with those things not in place because it was a place of perfect harmony. So let me summarize. The picture that God gives us of early human society is that everything was in a state of perfect harmony toward man and toward one another, that human beings were in a state of perfect harmony toward their creator, and that this is the way early human society was supposed to roll on if only Adam and Eve had not eaten that piddly tree. We know the story, and Adam and Eve blew it, and the world in which we live today is a far cry from the Garden of Eden. All right, well, that's our treatment of this topic for today. So that means it's time for us to ask our most important question, the question we ask every week around here, what difference does all this make to my life? You say, Gordon, I mean, I appreciate the little science lesson there and kind of the theology lesson, but, uh, you know, I got to fight traffic this week. I've got work to get to. I've got family coming in from out of town. I got COVID concerns. I got a boss who knows nothing about the Garden of Eden. So, I mean, help me out here. What difference does any of this make to me? Well, let's talk about that. Let's flip back to those verses uh, that we read a little bit ago in Genesis chapter 3. Again, this is the story of the fall of man. Adam and Eve ate of the fruit of the tree that they weren't supposed to. Sin has now happened, and then God finds out about it, and then some, some uh, results uh, follow from that. And so there's three curses that God makes. The first of those I want you to notice is directed toward the serpent. Here it comes, verse 14. And the Lord said to the serpent, because you've done this, Cursed are you above all livestock, above all fields of the beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. Verse 15, I'll put enmity between you and the woman, and your off between your offspring and her, and he shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. And so that's the first, uh, we believe, scholars believe, that that's the first of the um, foreshadowing or forecast toward the Messiah there in verse 15, that this offspring of Eve will come along one day, and you'll strike his heel, which will be like a, it'll wound him, it'll hurt, but it won't kill him. I mean, you can smash somebody's heel, but they're not going to die. But this offspring of Eve will crush your head, the serpent's head. Now, um, I had a snake get in the house, uh, underneath the house, three times, about two weeks ago. And we kept seeing this stupid snake showing up, long black snake. And I'm like, hey, look, buddy, throw outside in the backyard once, throw out in the backyard twice, but you showed up a third time, and I, in, my, in my baseball numbers, you, that's it. You're done for it. So he lost his head. He got a, he got a, he got a head crush on that one. Um, but I don't know why I told you all that. But anyway, um, had a little battle with a snake. I was out there slinging around. Anyway, um, so that's what happens here to the serpent is he, at the cross, or at the, at the resurrection of Christ, Christ conquers the grave, and it serves as a death blow to Satan. Um, it is... The point at which death is conquered um, and Christ takes victory. And then you skip on down to verse uh, 16. Um, again, so the first of the curses is directed at the serpent. The second of the curses is directed at the woman. Here we go, verse 16. To the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. If guys were responsible for children, there would be no more of us, right? Let's just go ahead and admit that, right, fellas? 
Um, so anyhow, that was one of the things that happened to the woman. And you shall desire, or your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. Again, part of the curse. Verse 17, and to Adam he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is what? The ground. Interesting. So the first of the curses is directed at the serpent. The second of the curses is directed at the woman. But the third of the curses is directed at the soil. It's directed at the ground. It's directed at creation itself. So here comes, enter into creation, thorns and thistles and death and decay and disease, all the things that we're not part of. Remember our biblical lenses. All the things that were not part of that world before sin had come into it. And so again, all those things enter into and become a part of creation. So we see what sin caused, not that God caused it, but that man's actions brought these results. You say, Gordon, I mean, is there any hope then? I mean, this, this is now the world in which we live. I mean, I'm born in this world. Uh, eventually I'll die, and there's all sorts of suffering and things like that that go along with being a part of this world. Is there any hope for this life, or is this just it? Is this just it? Well, I got good news for you, um, that one of these days God is going to give us back the three perfect things that he had, that man, that man had in the Garden of Eden. He's going to give us back a perfect environment, a perfect purpose in life, and he's going to give us back perfect relationships. Let me show this to you. 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and verse 51, Paul's talking about our resurrection bodies. There in verse 15 he says, Behold, in other words, listen, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. Verse 52 and a moment in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable. The word imperishable means that you won't die. I mean, you have goods that you put on a shelf and they've got a shelf life. They're perishable goods, right? They're in a can. Maybe they last a couple of years. Um, if it's some eggs, maybe it lasts a couple of weeks. But those are perishable items. God says that this body that he's going to give us after the resurrection or at the resurrection will be imperishable. That means it won't spoil. It won't decay. Um, it means that there will be no more pain, no more bacterial infections, no more multiple sclerosis, no more any of this. It's all going away. Why? Because God is going to create a perfect environment for us to live in at his return that includes an imperishable body. And not only is he going to recreate a perfect environment, but he's also going to recreate perfect purpose for us in life. We as men and women have lost our original purpose. We've taken what God intended to be a life lived for his service and for his glory, and we're now living for our own service. We're now living for our own glory, and God's going to turn all of that around. Instead of enjoying, instead we will enjoy God in sweet and personal intimacy with him. Men and women will come into the, now come into the world dead in their trespasses and sin. The New Testament says alienated from God. But when Jesus Christ returns, not only is he going to remodel the earth, but he's going to remodel the hearts of men and women. God will give us back our total purpose for this life, one that will bring happiness and satisfaction to our experience of it. Third and finally, God is going to restore perfect relationships to this world. This world hardly exists with perfect relationships today, right? We kill each other, we go to war with each other, we backbite each other, we undercut one another, we cheat one another. Man's worst enemy is man. There are all kinds of fights, all kinds of wars, all kinds of child abuse. We've got slaughter going on in the streets. Friends, when Jesus Christ comes back, he's going to restore us into right 
relationships with one another and with creation. Look at Isaiah chapter 11, verse 6, for example. Several verses here. It says, The wolf in this new Eden, the second Eden, says, The wolf shall dwell with the lamb, and the leopard shall lie down with the young goat, and the calf and the lion and the fatted calf will lie down together. A little child will lead the lamb. A little child will lead the wolf. Verse 7, the cow and the bear graze together. Their young will lie down together, and the lion will eat straw like the ox. Verse 8, the nursing child, get this, will play over the hole of the cobra. So I guess that black snake will be welcome in my house again one of these days, right? Um, And it says that the weaned child shall put his hand on the adder's den, last verse, verse 9, they shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord. Hey, friends, that's going to be a great day when we can lay down and take a nap next to the hole of the cobra. Interesting, huh? And not only will the animal kingdom be at peace with one another, but Isaiah says of that day, Isaiah 2 and verse 4, that God shall judge between the nations and shall decide disputes for many peoples, and they shall beat their swords into plowshares, getting rid of their weapons for war. It says, and, they shall, and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation shall not rise up against nation. Nation shall, shall, neither shall they learn for war anymore. You see, what began with Cain and Abel is going to come to an end at the return of Christ. The world will be made right again and will return to that Garden of Eden. Now, again, what difference does all this make to us? Well, i got two things for you. The first thing is, if you're here this morning, you've never put your faith and your trust in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, my question to you this morning is, if Jesus was to return tomorrow, the end of this year, whenever, if Jesus was to return, would you be ready? Would you be ready to go to that place, that second Eden? Revelation 21 and verse 27 says that nothing unclean will ever enter into this restored creation, nor does he who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. So if you're absolutely not sure that Jesus Christ is your Savior, that you're in a personal relationship with Him, friends, this is something that's important for you to come to grips with and to think about. You say, well, how do I get my name written in the Lamb's Book of Life? Well, it's really easy. Jesus said in John chapter 5 and verse 24, He said, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my words and believes in him, talking about Jesus himself, believes in me, him who sent me, has eternal life. Jesus said to his disciples after they'd come back from casting out demons and had this wonderful ministry experience, right? They'd been out there doing the missionary thing. And he said to them, hey, look, it's really good that you did that. But Luke chapter 10 and verse 20, do not rejoice in this, however, that the spirits are subject to you. But the thing you really ought to be happy about is to rejoice that your names are written in heaven. Now, that's really something to be excited about, Jesus says. Friend, to get your name written in the Lamb's Book of Life is very simple. Just trust Christ as your Savior. Give up every other means that you have put together as a reason why God should let you into heaven. Because none of those will work. God's holiness can be satisfied by nothing but the blood that Jesus shed on the cross. Plus, nothing else. We don't bring our religious performance. We don't bring our good works. We don't bring the fact that God, my good, outweighed my bad, I hope, in my life, or I did these really good things for people. 
Friends, none of that matters. None of that will get us into heaven. The only thing that gives us access, that gets our name written in the Lamb's Book of Life, is by putting our faith and our trust in what Jesus did on the cross on our behalf. Again, if you've never made that decision to trust Jesus as your Savior, something for you to think about. If you're here today and you do know Christ as your Savior, I've got a different difference. Now, I told that to the crowd down there, and they just kind of like didn't think that was funny, but I thought that was kind of funny. i got a different difference for you uh, as to what this may, means for your life, okay? My question to you is, and it, it fell on deaf ears again. Crickets, here we go. All right, are you keeping your eyes, here's my question to you, are you keeping your eyes on the finish line? Are you keeping your eyes as a believer, somebody who has entered in this relationship with Jesus, are you now keeping your eyes on the finish line of that Garden of Eden? Are you looking forward to heaven? Are you looking forward to being reunited with those that have gone before you? Are you looking forward to that experience, that reward that God has for us in heaven? The Lord Jesus understood this principle. Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 2, um, talking about Jesus, it says, who for the joy, Jesus, who for the joy that was set before him. And what was the joy that was set before Jesus? It was returning to the Father. It was going back to heaven. It was going back to that experience. That's the finish line. Who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross. Friends, Jesus had endurance for his present sufferings by looking to his future reward. Paul said in 2 Corinthians chapter 4 and verse 16, For we do not lose heart. There's the endurance. For we do not lose heart. Verse 17, why? Because this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory that is beyond all comparison. That's the finish line. Paul said, I'm going through some tough stuff right now, but I'm keeping my eyes focused on the finish line. I'm keeping my eyes focused on the prize. And by doing that, I'm able just to trudge through all this stuff that I'm going through. Again, because Paul and the Lord Jesus kept their eyes on the finish line, kept their eyes on the prize, it helped keep them going. And friends, when we read the Word of God and God tells us about the finish line like we've been reading about and learning today, it's kind of like God is saying to us, come on, you can do it. You got the finish line. It's right there. It's waiting for you. Just keep pressing forward. Keep pressing on because there's this wonderful reward that's going to go on for eternity. And it's waiting for you. Friends, if you know Jesus Christ as your Savior, I want to tell you, it'll be worth everything when you see him. He'll give you a new body. There'll be no wheelchairs in heaven. And Jesus is going to refashion the world back to the way it was. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, some of us are so worried about death, so caught up, in what might possibly happen to me. That, Lord, we're not living the life that you've given us. We're gripped by fear. And, Lord, this is not from you. You said, I've got a reward for you. You're the God who made us this promise. You said, John 3, 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whosoever believes in him would not perish, but will have everlasting life. Your promise. God, may we walk through the coming weeks and months with boldness. May we live the life and the days that you've given us to the fullest because we have this belief 
that we live in a fallen world, but this is not it. This is not the end. But there's an eternity with you that awaits us. So God, give us confidence for each day to love those around us, to live out your purpose for our life, to live free, free of fear. Lord, uh, we thank you for your shed blood and for your broken body, which made it all possible. Lord, we come to celebrate that this morning, this communion meal. Encourage our hearts this morning again with the truth of your death and resurrection. Lord, we commit this space to you. We pray these things in Christ's holy name. Amen. We invite you to share in the communion elements that are there. If you didn't grab it on your way in, you can slip out for the back and you'll find the communion elements there. Let's share in this time of communion together.